The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. All right. Good morning, church. Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, Happy Palm Sunday to you. We decided that we're not going to have the children march through the room waving palms because if to be consistent, then we would have to have them march through the room on Friday shouting, crucify him, because uh, it's the same people. You know that, right? Uh, so we just felt like eh, that's not going to fly this year. So, hey, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab them and open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 24? 1 Samuel 24 is where we're going to be. This is not a traditional Palm Sunday text, uh, but that's because we are in 1 Samuel. There are some ties, though, in this text to uh, what we are observing today as we enter into Holy Week as a Christian community, but we'll get there. Uh, 1 Samuel 24, that's where we're going to spend our time. Phones, tablets are fine. Those hardback black Bibles under every chair. 1 Samuel 24 is on page 246 there, Um, but that's where we're going to spend our time. 1 Samuel 24. Uh, as you are meeting me there, last summer, I took my family on a road trip to Southern California. While I was on sabbatical, we road trip to SoCal because my daughter Harper had never seen the ocean. She's never seen the ocean. She'd never been to the beach, like, and not like Chatfield Beach, right? <laughs> that ain't a thing, all right, y'all? Like Colorado people, that's not the beach. That's just some sand next to a cesspool, all right? Uh, I'm talking about like the real beach, okay, the, the ocean beach. So we said, we're taking the road trip to San Diego. We're gonna go to San Diego and go to the beach. That's a 16-hour drive if you drive straight. And we had a six-year-old So we didn't drive straight, okay? That's just uh, how it goes. Here's how that drive goes. If you've not done the the drive, it's a beautiful drive, sort of, okay? Colorado, beautiful. Utah, beautiful, and an increased speed limit, okay? Excellent, all right? Uh, But then you hit the edge of this little state called Nevada, and you drive through this little city called Las Vegas, and then you drive into California. And and here's what I'm going to say. Southeast California. California is gross. Listen, if you're from there, I'm sorry. All right, it's just gross. Now, uh, when we took road trips as a kid, like when I was a child, we would go on road trips. And and, and you know what we did to pass the time, those endless hours, the 16-hour long road trip? You know what we did to pass the time as children in the 80s? Nothing. (laughs) We... We stared out the window, really. I mean, that's like, you would stare. If you had one of those station wagons, you'd stare backwards at the people driving in front of you, right? Like, you would you'd just stare at nothing. And, that, and, you know, staring is fine in Colorado and Utah. Staring in the desert of California is just like, I don't know how we survived those things. And it was, would we ever get there? It was painful. That was my experience as a kid road tripping. My daughter, though, did not have that same experience last summer because she had an iPad loaded up with movies. She had movies, she had her own Bluetooth headphones that paired to that iPad so that we didn't have to listen to Frozen on repeat for 16 hours, right? She had, we, we, Mar- Marcy put together like activity books and snacks and games. At one point she had my phone, she was playing video games on my phone as we're driving through the desert. And in the middle of the trip, my sweet little daughter had the audacity to say these things to me. How long is this ride gonna take? 
Daddy, I'm, I'm bored. I'm, I'm bored out of my mind. How long uh, are we there yet? She started saying these things. And now hear me, I had to hold myself back from becoming my father. I had to hold myself back from having a Tom Martin moment where I said, listen, when I was a kid, like I had to hold myself back from that because I remember staring and she's got, you know, 40 Disney movies on an iPad. But I realized in this moment last summer, I realized that, that the world that Harper is living in, the world that we are living in is a world where boredom and, and slowness and waiting is almost akin to like a sin. It's almost sinful. But I'm calling today's sermon, sermon, Waiting Works. The title of our sermon today is Waiting Works, because I want to talk about waiting. I want to talk about waiting in this world that has been so saturated with the idea that waiting is a bad thing. I want to offer the opposite, that waiting works. It actually does something for us because our whole world in an attempt to make things easier and more streamlined and more convenient and faster has, has bred into us a lack of patience that actually results in a lack of resilience. That's what not waiting does. I'm just offering that the scriptures teach that waiting actually does something. Waiting works. It just works. So that's what we're going to see in our text. Let's get after it. 1 Samuel chapter 24. We're going to make it through this whole chapter together. Look at verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. All right, so this is the context. Let's set the context for where we are at. First Samuel, if you're new with us, we've been walking through First Samuel for a long time. First Samuel is a historical book in the Old Testament. It's part of what's known as the historical books. Uh, and First Samuel specifically is covering the establishment of the monarchy of Israel, the kingdom of Israel. So the first king of Israel who shows up in First Samuel is a guy named Saul. That's who we just read about. Saul is the king, and the second king of Israel will be a guy named David, King David. You may have heard of him. But as it stands in 1 Samuel 24, Saul is the king. David is not yet the king. But what we found out is that because of Saul's ongoing disobedience to God's commands— his ongoing obstinate position against the way that God wants him to lead. Because of that, God has rejected him as king and David has been anointed as his successor, as the future king. But it's not all come to fruition yet, all right? And back in chapter 17, back in 17, David courageously killed the great Philistine giant Goliath the most famous story in the Bible. That happened in 1 Samuel 17. But when Saul sees how Israel loves David because of that, how they exalt David because of that, how he wins the favor of all of Israel, Saul gets envious, he becomes jealous and determines that this guy has to go. This guy is a threat to my kingdom. And so Saul tries to kill David. Literally, he tries to kill him with his own hand. Remember this? He throws a spear trying to pin him to the wall three separate times. Misses each time because David's got some mad ninja skills. But the, the point is Saul, the king, wants David, the not king, dead. And for the last number of chapters, that's been the story. David is running. Saul is hunting. David is hiding. 
Saul is aggressing. That's what we've been seeing in our text. And that's where we are today. Saul gets word that David and his men are hiding in the wilderness of Engedi. Engedi. Okay, that's all to set us up. Let's look at verse two. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rock. Verse three, and he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Let's pause there. Uh, I guess when you've got to go, You've got to go, even, even for major Bible characters. But if, if you read that sentence and you're a bit demented, like myself, uh, it raises some questions in your mind. One particular question, uh, he went in to relieve himself, number one or number two? That's my question. Anybody else wondering that when they read that? Anyone want to be honest that they've got some twisted in? No, okay, thank you. Okay, one person who's honest and real here. Um, that's what I wanted to know, just so you know, okay? But the Hebrew word that is translated, you've never thought that you would get this talk on Palm Sunday, okay? But the Hebrew word that is translated relieve himself is actually an important word. It literally means, literally translated, he covered his feet. If you read it in the King James, it says, Saul went in to cover his feet. This is a euphemism, everyone. This is a euphemism, and I just want you to recognize that the Bible, the, the infallible, holy, inspired word of God wants you to know that Saul covered his feet. He, he dropped his drawers. That's what the text says. Now, why is this important? Is it just potty humor for pastors who are, you know, immature? Is that, what, is that why this is in here? Possibly. <laughs> Possibly, but... But here's what I think it means. I think it's giving us a little bit of insight into what the situation is. Saul is going into a cave to relieve himself, to cover his feet. And, and what that means is that nobody, not even his personal bodyguard would have attended him in this way. No one would have accompanied him into the cave for this purpose, obviously. And so he is all by himself unguarded. The king is in the cave going to the bathroom all by himself. And I imagine his guards are outside and they are just listening. You hear any movement? No, but I smell something, right? Yeah. I mean, you can take the man out of youth ministry, but you can't take the youth ministry out of the man, okay? Um, but that's setting up what's going to happen here. Saul went in to relieve himself. That was middle of verse four. Uh, middle of verse three, I'm sorry. And then it says, now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Okay, so Saul, he just happens to pick the cave that David and his guys are hiding in. This is, this is completely happenstance, right? Right? He just happens to show up into the one cave that David is hiding in. You know that Saul doesn't know that David's hiding in there or else he would never have gone in there by himself to relieve himself. He would have brought his guards. He has no idea that David and the boys are in there. Now let's look at what happens. Verse four. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's 
robe. So David's men see Saul wander in and they can't believe what's happening. They cannot believe at this good fortune. They say, actually, it's not even good luck. It's the Lord. They say, of all the places that this guy would show up, unguarded, vulnerable, he shows up here. David, are you seeing this? Are you seeing this? How could you not worship a God like this who teased this guy up for this? I mean, he is handing Saul to you on a porcelain platter. Like you should take him out. This is your chance. And the text says David arose and grabs his knife. And we don't know what goes on in his mind here, but I wonder, I wonder what's happening in David's mind as he's crawling over to Saul because you see, it's been years now. I mean, it's been years since David was picked out of all of his brothers and anointed by Samuel as king. It's been years now since David was promoted out of the sheep pasture and into the palace to serve Saul. It's been years. I mean, it's been years even since David killed Goliath and won the favor of all of Israel. It's been years, frankly, since David began running from Saul. Saul has been hunting David for years, day after day, month after month, year after year. It's been years. And in all of those years, the message has been, not yet, man. David, not, not yet. You're not the king yet. Don't skip ahead in line. Don't force it. It's not yet. It's not time. But now, his guys just said, this is your day, man. This is your time. So David arose, and who knows what's going on in his mind? I mean, I don't know. This is all conjecture, but who knows what's going on? He could have justified doing anything to Saul that he wanted. He could have justified this. I'm the next anointed king. I'm just taking what's rightfully mine. He could have made that justification. And what's more, this is actually self-defense. This guy has literally tried to spear me. Uh, this is self-defense. I can justifiably take him out. And he's not even doing a good job. I mean, let's be real. He's not even being a good king. And so actually, it's my civic duty to take him out. I'm doing good for the nation if I take him out. I'm a patriot. This can be going on in his mind. But as he sneaks up on Saul, something switches because he doesn't kill him. He doesn't kill him. He only cuts off the corner of his robe. Look at verse five. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Verse seven, so David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. What is it that struck David's heart that would cause him not to kill Saul, but only to cut the corner of his robe. What was it that struck him? Well, the text says that he remembered who Saul was. He remembered who Saul was. Saul was the Lord's anointed. Saul was the Lord's anointed. Who else is the Lord's anointed? 
David. David is also the Lord's anointed. So that means that Saul, for the last almost 10 chapters, has been on a mission to kill the anointed one of the Lord, the Lord's anointed. And that means that if David kills Saul, David becomes Saul. He does the exact same thing that Saul has been trying to do to him. And I think, I think that that means that David in his mind is saying, listen, if I, if God puts Saul on the throne and I take him off of that, that must be a sin. See, if, 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 if God anointed Saul to be king and he anointed me to be king, then it's God's job to remove Saul from the throne and to put me on the throne. He understands that, that Saul is the Lord's anointed. And thus, it's what causes this check in his heart. And it's my first point this morning. Y'all, you have to wait for it. You have to wait for it. it waiting works, but it only works if you wait for it, <laughs> right? You can't bypass that first step of waiting, like the actual part where you wait. David, hear me, he knows he should not murder. He knows he should not murder. That's actually one of the big 10, all right? Six commandment stuff, don't kill people. It's easy, it's top 10. It's in every Sunday school classroom in the world, right? Don't kill people. And so David knows this, he knows that he shouldn't murder, let alone murder the Lord's anointed king. He knows that's wrong. And even with this seemingly providential opportunity where Saul is handed to him, David will not become like Saul. He won't become like him, the very one he was destined to replace. And so he, he waits for it. He waits for it. I want to make applications here for a moment with us. Um, because some of you are maybe waiting on some stuff right now. Whether you're in transition, you're hoping for some transition, you're thinking about making some changes, whatever it is. You might be in a season, we like to talk about a season of waiting, right? Just kind of circling the runway or the, you know, just spinning, uh, like you're waiting, you're in this place. Here's what I want to make some applications around. One of the hardest parts of faithfully following Jesus is trusting and waiting on God's timing, that's one of the hardest parts of faithfully following Jesus is his timing is what you should be waiting for. God says, wait for it, wait for it. But we say, but I want it now. I want it, I want it now. And he's like, just, just wait, it's gonna be better. No, 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 no. I don't think you understand, Lord. I need this now. I want this now. I'm gonna get this now. And he just keeps lovingly saying, wait, wait for it, wait for it. This is so very important for us to understand. Sometimes we get this feeling that we gotta do something, that we gotta take matters into our own hands and we hear something or we sense something from the Lord and we think, hey, that must mean it requires immediate action. I gotta go. I'm gonna miss my window of opportunity if I don't. And I'm just gonna say it once again. One of the hardest parts of faithfully following Jesus is trusting his process. It's trusting his timing. Because there's nothing worse than getting a good thing at the wrong time. Has this ever happened to you? You get a good thing, but at the wrong time? 
and it can become disastrous. Too much responsibility before you're ready for it can wreck your career. The delight of sexual intimacy before you're wed to that person. I mean, the wrong thing, or the, like even a good thing, a right thing at the wrong time can lead to disaster. So God says, wait for it. You gotta wait for it. Actually, waiting on God is, is a theme throughout the Bible. If you've ever read through the Bible, you might know some of these, but Moses, he had to wait 40 years in the desert after seeing a bush that was on fire and yet not consumed and hearing the audible voice of God. He had to wait 40 years before he could lead God's people out of slavery. Had to wait for it. Joseph, remember Joseph in Genesis? Joseph gets this dream as a teenager, probably shouldn't have shared it with his brothers. It's not a great idea, kind of a dumb teenager, all right? But, uh, but he had, ends up waiting, listen, two decades. And actually, those two decades are pretty awful for him. Two decades of solid suffering pass before he sees that dream come to fruition. You gotta wait for it. Even, even our friend, the Apostle Paul, who writes much of our New Testament, uh, after he's knocked off of his horse and blinded and radically converted into a, a Christian, becomes a Christian, he spends more than a decade being discipled in his hometown before he gets the call to go and start planting churches. So you don't just instantly turn from like a Christian hater, a Christian murderer to the apostle Paul. Let me write down with my hand from the third heavens what you hear in the scriptures. It just doesn't happen like that. It takes time. You gotta wait for it. So here's a good rule of thumb, okay? Preachers, pastors, we like to give good sweeping generalizations that aren't always true, but mostly true. So take this as it is, but this is a good rule of thumb. Faithfulness rarely requires immediate action, but it always requires waiting. Faithfulness rarely requires immediate action, but it always requires waiting. And the only thing that's harder than waiting on the Lord, you know what it is? Looking back on not waiting on the Lord and wishing that you had. How many of our regrets are built around us forcing the issue, forcing our hand, taking things into our own hands? Because we're just impatient and unable to wait. Wait for it. All right. Verses 8 through 15, here's what happens. Let's look at the text. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of the men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave, me, gave you into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, 
You may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And as the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom the king of Israel come out. After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give, you, give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David must be a preacher because that's a tirade right there. That's a long paragraph. He goes off. And what I want to observe from this is that when I said to you just before this that faithfulness rarely requires immediate action, some of you might want to push back on that and say, surely sometimes it does require immediate action. Like, pastor, that's a pretty passive way of looking at life. If you're just always waiting, sometimes you actually got to get up and do something. But note here, David doesn't do nothing. David doesn't do nothing. He gives a speech, a mega speech, right? This long speech. And in his speech for the umpteenth time, David is going to try to reconcile and convince Saul that he is not out to get him. And this is a big deal because you see in this text, waiting isn't a passive thing. It's not a passive thing. And it's my second point, okay? As you wait for it, you work for it. As you wait, waiting works, right? As you wait, you got to get to work. You got to work for it. Actually, hear me, waiting is your work. Waiting works and it's what you do. Waiting is your work. Waiting isn't just sitting on your couch. Waiting isn't just scrolling on your phone mindlessly. Waiting isn't doing nothing. David is not just hanging out in a cave waiting for God to do something else because he's already brought Saul into this cave. David's not doing nothing. Now he gets after it. He gets to work. He works for it. David's doing all kinds of work since Saul's trying to kill him. He's running. He's hiding. He's fighting, fighting some of the battles that, that Saul should be fighting. Now he's pleading. I mean, this sounds like a lot of work. Waiting on the Lord sounds like a lot of work. Waiting takes work. But listen, waiting works. Confused yet? No, it makes sense. You've got to work while you wait. What does that look like? I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. For one, uh, when I was in high school, one of the proms that I went to, I went to a few proms. When I went to, that's a flex right there, okay? Uh, <laughs> I went to a few proms. When I went one of, to one of these proms, I went with a girl who, um, well, her, her family was in a different tax bracket than mine. Follow me there, okay? Uh, and, and so she wanted to go to dinner for prom to a real fancy restaurant in Colorado Springs. Uh, there are some fancy restaurants, believe it or not, in Colorado Springs. One of them is a five-star restaurant in the Broadmoor Hotel. Five-star, all right. Bouge. Like... That's straight bougie, okay? Uh, and, and, and that's before we even said that word, all right? Uh, and my family, 
we just weren't five-star restaurant kind of people. Okay, we were, um, we, were, we were country town buffet kind of people, right? We were bringing a doggy bag to a buffet kind of people. That's, that's the kind of people that we were. So this caliper of experience at a restaurant was, was frankly brand new to me, never been to something like that. And so here's what happened. We get to this restaurant, we sit down, and a guy who followed us to the table grabs my napkin off my table, whips it out, and lays it in my lap. And I almost ninja him. Because <laughs> ain't nobody laying things in my lap very often, okay? And so that's a level of service I do not require, all right? But he did it. It's part of his training. Every single time I took a drink of water from my glass, there was someone hovering, and they would fill it. Every sip. Every single sip, there was legitimately a fleet of people who were just there for our table. Like I swear, just for our table, making sure we had everything that we needed exactly as we wanted it, sometimes even before we asked for it. It's like they were mind readers. Do you want to just, hey, can you chew up my steak for me and like baby bird it? Because like that's, no, that's, that's what was going on there, okay? Now, what do we call those people? Stalkers, right? That's what we call those people. <laughs> No, we call them waiters. They're there to wait. They're there to wait on us. This is what we're talking about. Waiting on the Lord requires attentiveness. Waiting on the Lord requires activity. Waiting on the Lord, it requires work. It's work. It's not passive. It's active. But here's how it often works in faith circles, in Christian circles. You say, oh man, I want to know God better. I want to know God better. I should probably read my Bible. And so you get to work. You get to work reading your Bible and you get up early for a week or two. And, and, and then when you don't have these deep, meaningful experiences every single morning in God's word, you're like, well, this isn't working and you're out. Or maybe you're always looking for a new church, just kind of habitually hopping from church to church, from place to place, always looking for the better experience, always looking for like some sort of spiritual silver bullet that'll just lock you in, always looking for the place that just makes you feel Jesus more. But then you go to a place and after three weeks at that same place, you complain because you don't have deep, meaningful relationships with people. You don't have like a, a deep, ingrained, passionate purpose at this place. And did you hear that sermon? I mean, really Saul covering his feet? Do they need to go there? Is that what I'm getting at this church? And you're out. Listen, you, you got to work at it. But we want it now. I want it now. We want everything right now. And if it's not happening exactly right now, then it must not work. Certainly, I'm not the issue. It must not work. But y'all, that's not how life works. Waiting works. And you gotta work while you wait. Okay, let's finish this text. Verse 16. We'll go to the end here. 16 to 22. And as soon as, as David had finished his mega speech, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? 
And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. So David's speech does pay off that day. Right, the work that he does as he waits, not killing the Lord's anointed, but waiting and giving this speech, doing that work, it pays off because Saul leaves him alone. He goes home, okay? And David makes a promise that he would not cut off David's line when he is king, which he will keep. We'll see this with Jonathan's son in the future. But, but Saul's uh, remorse here is, is merely surface level. We're going to see this in coming chapters. It's not as deep as true repentance. He, he, he feels bad, but it's not actually going to lead to change in his life. And just note that Saul goes home and David goes back to the wilderness, back to the caves. Just because somebody says they're sorry doesn't mean you return home with them. Just That one's for free. Okay, just put that one in your pocket. That one's for free. Reconciliation does not mean you go back to the way things were before an offense occurred. They go their opposite ways, even in the midst of what seems like a heartfelt response from Saul. So that's the text. That's chapter 24. Here's what I want to do with the remainder of our time together. I want to talk about the corner of his robe, that little bit, that corner of his robe thing, because I actually think that's the key to this text. Now, the corner of the garment in Hebrew is, uh, is called kanaf, kanaf, okay? Uh, and that's a Hebrew word that's used in this text uh, in 1 Samuel that's translated edge of the garment. He cut off the edge of Saul's garment, his kanaf. But that, that word, kanaf, is also translated edge of the garment, but in other places in the Old Testament, it's translated cutting off his wing. It's translated the wing or the edge of the garment, kanaf, okay? And the wing, the kanaf, it represents the authority of God. It represents one's authority, the wing or the edge of the garment. Now, one benefit that we have that the original readers of 1 Samuel did not have is that we have, alongside of this narrative of David's story in 1 Samuel, we have this really interesting glimpse into David's heart as we read this because David penned many of the Psalms that we know and love while he is running from Saul in these texts. And so it's like we have his diary, it's like that we have his prayer journal. And so in Psalm 57, we find David's written prayer and record of what happens exactly during this moment in, in 1 Samuel 24. I'll put this up on the screen. Psalm 57, let me read this. A mitcom of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. So this is what's going on here. Verse one, be merciful to me. Oh God, be merciful to me. For in you, 
my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, kanaf, in the shadow of your kanaf, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. So when David cuts off Saul's kanaf, he's really making a statement here about authority. He's made, this, this whole passage is actually about authority. Whose authority are you under? Are you under your own authority? Maybe a better way to say it is, who do you wait on? You waiting on yourself? Getting things that you need for you? Taking care of yourself? Are you your own waiter? Are you under your authority? Or are you under the authority of God? Are you waiting on him? And in David's reflection in Psalm 57, he says, God, I take refuge under your kanaf, under your wing, under the edge of your garment, under your authority. I'm placing myself underneath you. I'm not under Saul's wing. I'm not even under my own wing because I wanted to kill him. No, Lord, I am under your authority. And I'm gonna make my final point here. Why do we wait for it? And why do we work for it? It's because that's how we get under it. You wait for it and you work for it to get under it. Under what? Under his kanaf. Under his wing, under his authority. You gotta get under the Lord's Authority. It's not about taking matters into your own hands. That'd be your own kanaf. It's not about getting under the correct external authority, though that's important, but it's not getting under Saul's kanaf that's necessary. It's finding the correct wing, the right kanaf. Waiting works because it takes the authority off of yourself and it places it rightly on God. It's how you get under God's wings. But then there's one more kind of really cool insight from this passage that I want to bring up this morning. Jesus, Jesus, we all familiar with Jesus. Jesus, one of his titles that Jesus had was Messiah. Jesus was called the Messiah. That's one of his titles. And if you do a word study to figure out what the word Messiah actually means, it's very fascinating. And we can look back to 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 6 once again. So just look at verse 6 one more time with me. David said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. The word anointed in the Hebrew is Mashiach. Mashiach, where we get the word Messiah. Mashiach. So Jesus was the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Lord's anointed one. And on Jesus' day, when he comes riding into Jerusalem, that day on his way to Jerusalem, the last, what we're celebrating today, Palm Sunday, on the ushering in of Holy Week, the last week of Christ's life, Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives before he enters in Jerusalem. And he looks out over Jerusalem. He looks out over the Kidron Valley, over the Eastern wall of Jerusalem. And the scriptures say that when he sees Jerusalem, he begins to weep. 
He begins to weep. And then Jesus says these words in Matthew 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you, gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. You see, looking over the city where he would be betrayed, looking over the city where, where people would call for his crucifixion, looking over the city where he would be mocked and shamed, where he would be uh, whipped and humiliated, where he would be paraded through the streets and nailed to a cross. Looking over that city, Jesus weeps. He says, I would, your children, I would, I wish that I would put them under the, the shadow of my wing, gathering them under my wings, yet you were not Willing, Jesus wept over Jerusalem, and I think Jesus would weep over many of us in the same way. The Messiah, the Mashiach, wants, to, wants you to find refuge in the shadow of his wings. He wants you under his authority, not, not your own, under his wing. And the question is, have you gotten under that? Have you placed yourself under the shelter of, of the anointed one's wings? Have you submitted to his authority? You may have. And listen, even if it feels like you're waiting for something, even if it feels like in placing yourself under there, you're still kind of on this waiting pattern. You're circling the airport, wondering when you're gonna be called in to land. Even there, if it feels like your waiting will never end, the encouragement from our text today is that we should look to David's story. We should look to David and, and see that, that we should wait for it. Wait for God's purpose and God's timing. It will ultimately be worth it. But that as we wait, we work. As we wait, we, we get to work. Waiting is our work. And it's all so that we would get under his authority, finding our, uh, our, our place underneath his wing. That's why we call this sermon Waiting Works. I don't know what you're waiting for but I want you to consider that. That's also why I had Isaiah 40 read over us this morning. So let me read this one more time. Isaiah chapter 40. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. Waiting works. So what are you waiting for? Let's pray together. Lord, we bless you. We bless you because this story in 1 Samuel 24 just so happens to line up with this Sunday, Palm Sunday, in our church calendar. And as we read this ancient story, this ancient text, it, real, it reveals so many things that, that we struggle with. We struggle with authority issues. We struggle with patience 
issues. We struggle with not understanding what you're doing, why you're doing it, and at what speed you're doing it. God, this, if we're honest, sometimes this stuff just feels so unbelievably, excruciatingly slow. And yet this is the purpose and the plan that you have for us. And so, Lord, I pray for myself, for my brothers and sisters today, where we are waiting, I pray for perseverance. Where we are longing for the next chapter, I pray that we would be patient. Where we are waiting for direction from you, guidance from you, when is this going to be over from you? I pray we see that waiting is actually the way that we put ourselves under your authority. And those who are in Christ Jesus, that's who we have placed ourselves under. We've placed ourselves under your wing. So Lord, encourage us with the story from from your servant, David. Encourage us where we are today to wait for it, to work for it, and ultimately to get under your authority. We love you, Father. As we walk into this holy week, do deep things in our hearts and in our minds. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.